Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. One thing about hosting a radio show about animals is that we receive a ton of unsolicited samples of pet products of all sorts. We also get scores of books, but that's not what I want to talk about today. What we receive that leads to many questions around here are about dog treats and chewable dog toys. And we're always trying to figure out what's safe and what's appropriate for our dogs. Anyone who has dogs has to go through this process of deciding what's a good toy or treat for them, whether the item is safe or a choking hazard or nutritious or potentially toxic. So dog people, let's find out what we need to know about the safety of treats and toys. And here with us now is Dr. Doug Coons, Medical Director, Desert VCA Animal Hospital in Palm Springs, California. Welcome to the program, Dr. Coons. Oh, thanks, Lori. I'm happy to be here. Doug, let's start with toys and particularly the sorts of toys that a dog might chew on. What are the ideal toys and what are the things that, in your view, are risky? You know, the most important thing is that the toy is sized appropriately for the dog. So, you know, you don't want to go and buy a three-foot-long rawhide bone for your chihuahua. So size the toy appropriate to, for the size of the dog. And it shouldn't be something that can be destroyed uh, rapidly and ingested. So lots of times some of the softer toys uh, that have squeakers inside can sometimes be a little dangerous because some dogs will just obsessively go after those until they tear that squeaker out. And uh, we once in a while have to take a squeaker out of a dog, and that's that's not fun for for your veterinarian or fun for the dog. So, uh, again, they should be pretty much indestructible toys. Let's get into some specific examples. Doug, how about the very hard plastic bones that are sometimes advertised for strong chewers, like, for example, Nyla bone? Some of them are so hard, I, I can't imagine them being safe for teeth. Exactly, Lori. My dental specialists, you know, there is a specialty in veterinary, in veterinary medicine for, for veterinary dentists, and they tell me that you shouldn't give your dog anything that you can't dent with your thumbnail. And uh, particularly the nyla bones and some of the other really hard bones, we, we tend to see slab fractures of the teeth, particularly some of the, the larger teeth on the, on the upper uh, arcade of teeth uh, will develop a slab fracture, and then the tooth has to be extracted or they, they require a, a root canal. So, you know, if you can't dent it with your thumbnail, you probably shouldn't give it to your dog. Good advice. How about the toys that are made of or have heavy-duty pieces of rope? One of my dogs loves them, but I have to tell you, Doug, we see bits of rope in her stool, and besides being a little gross, it always worries us a little bit. You know, those probably are pretty safe. And if there are little bits of rope that uh, get ingested, uh, they're probably just going to pass through without uh, causing any issues. In my 40 years of practice, uh, I don't think I've ever seen an issue with that kind of a toy. And by the way, since we're talking about rope, what is your opinion about dogs playing tug-of-war? Is is it okay for their teeth? You know, it, it actually is is okay for their teeth. We we seldom see any harm coming from that kind of activity. You know, dogs sometimes will carry things in their mouth that are a little bit abrasive, and that can cause wear on the teeth, particularly tennis balls. 
uh, dogs that are kind of obsessed with a tennis ball will see the the canine, the long teeth, uh, uh, worn down to expose the the, uh, the nerves, and that that's not a good thing. So I I don't like uh, you know things that are habitually carried in the mouth that uh, that are abrasive. Oh, very good. Okay. How about the rubber toys, like the classic Kong toys? I love Kongs uh, for two reasons. Number one, they're they're pretty indestructible. They have give to them, so they're they're not likely to fracture a tooth. But even more importantly, those kinds of toys can entertain a dog because you can pack them with their food. Uh, some behaviorists uh, recommend. Uh, putting peanut butter in them as long as it doesn't have xylitol uh, and then freezing them. And then the dogs will occupy themselves with those for hours, particularly dogs that that uh, tend to be larger breed dogs that uh, have some anxiety and just being cooped up all the time. This gives them a job. What a great tip. Doug, some toys have thick fabric as one of their main components. What do you think about those? You know, it, as long as it's not destroyed quickly, I don't have a problem with the ones that are fabric. They're, again, they're soft. They're not going to cause any harm to the teeth. And generally, if they get pieces of it off, uh, it's going to pass. But the big thing is, if the toy starts to get destroyed, throw it away. Don't risk the, you know, the dog ingesting major parts of it that would then require removal. Doug, earlier you commented about the squeaky toys. You know, these toys have a stuffing or filling to them, and they also have this squeaking device, which we often see as two parts. One is a softer, hollow, plastic, compressible balloon-type piece, and the other is a small, hard, plastic cylinder that makes the sound when the air gets pushed through it. I would have to say our dogs would ingest all of this if we let them. The key to the squeaky toys is does the dog just enjoy playing with it or is the dog destroying it and if the dog's destroying it it's not a not a good choice i've had dogs that have had squeaky toys and they they love to squeak them and carry them around but they haven't destroyed them but if they're destroying them then there's potential for ingestion So, Doug, what are your recommendations for dogs who seem to be able to destroy and tear apart any kind of toy? I absolutely have angst over that. I don't like to see a toy that's easily destroyed or even that's difficult to destroy, but once the dog starts to destroy it, there's the potential for ingestion. And it's just better to err in the realm of of safety and and not let the dog continue to destroy a toy once that process has begun. Throw it away and buy a new toy. Okay, so Doug, let's move on to treats and animal bones. Overall, what are your likes and dislikes in terms of dog safety? I'll refer back to the statement I made about the toys uh, that my dental specialists uh, say, and that is if you can't dent it with your thumbnail, don't give it to your dog. And so, you know, giving a a bone carries some risk with it. And again, we tend to see these slab fractures of the upper fourth premolar, which is the big tooth, chewing tooth uh, on on either side uh, in the upper upper teeth. And so we want to stay away from things that are really hard like that. As much as dogs love those, you know, I've seen a little round bone that you get out of a, a round steak uh, 
dogs will chew the marrow out of it and then chew them. And sometimes that gets caught around the the upper canine teeth, and and then you have a trip to the vet trying to extract a bone from the mouth. So I'm I'm not really big on those. I'm not really big on pig's ears and bully sticks uh, because those, uh, you know, are both animal parts, and somebody, you know, found out that something that they were throwing away could be turned into income. And in the literature, there are reports of both of those harboring E. coli. Mm. And so uh, just, again, best to stay away from those. Or if you do use them, be sure you know the country of origin. If it's from the United States, there's been somewhat of an inspection process before those are marketed. Whereas from some other countries, uh, there's a risk involved that you could infect your dog. So I'm, I'm not... I'm not a fan of those. Doug, we've never been in the habit of giving our dogs rawhide because we've heard it can be particularly dangerous. What's your advice there? You know, again, rawhide uh, carries some risk because it's hard. I don't know if you've ever tried to dent a, a rawhide bone with your thumbnail. You can't do it. Yeah. So we do see fractured teeth from rawhide. Uh, the other thing that we see, particularly in the smaller rawhide things that are, you know, kind of the shape of a pencil, those can be ingested very quickly, and because they're eaten and the whole thing goes down, they can cause a, an intestinal obstruction. And we do find instances where we've had to go in and surgically remove those. Mm. So I'm, I'm not a big rawhide fan. Okay, and there's a popular brand name product that everyone seems to know about called Greenies. What are they made of, and are they safe? The Greenies are a vegetable fiber product. And actually, you know, there was a problem with greenies a few years ago, and, and so the manufacturer went through a process of revamping their product. And greenies are, are really good. And they, there are several companies that, that make greenies. There's a greenie made by one company that's impregnated with chlorhexidine. And chlorhexidine is a, a, it's a chemical, but it's used as a human mouthwash. We use it to cleanse a wound. And that chlorhexidine that's impregnated in those greenies is antibacterial to the mouth, so it really does help to keep the bacteria down. There's a newer product called Oravet that is like a greenie. It has those long-strand vegetable fibers, which help to scrape the plaque off the teeth. But it also has another product, again, that comes from human medicine that softens black and calculus so that when the dog chews that treat, it softens the calculus and then the long strand vegetable fibers that surround it help to remove that. So appropriate to treats like that can really be a benefit because even though the gold standard is brushing your dog's teeth, we all know realistically that uh, there is not every dog out there uh, is going to be amenable to that. One final question I have for you. Is it okay to let my dogs eat ice cubes once in a while? I mean, it makes one of my dogs so happy for a few seconds, but I've read that you really shouldn't do this. It runs the same danger as you and I chewing on ice. You've got something very cold and very hard, and it can lead to to tooth fractures. Now, that said, 
Sometimes if I have a dog that's got a little bit of an upset tummy and has had a vomiting problem, I recommend putting two or three ice cubes in a bowl for a dog to lick and drink the water, and that controls the amount of water that's ingested. So I'm not totally against ice cubes, but uh, as a regular treat, I I don't recommend it because, again, the, the potential for tooth fracture. Veterinarian Dr. Douglas Coons, this was so informative and educational. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Lori. It's been my pleasure. It's becoming more and more common for people to travel with their pets. So I started to do a little research on tips when traveling with your pet so that I could share the information with you. And I started to reflect upon a trip that my husband and I took a few summers ago with our dogs. And I thought about some of the things that we did right or simply what went well and some of the slight problems we encountered and what we may have done differently. So I thought I would share experience with you, hoping it may help you or offer you some tips if you're thinking about traveling with your pet. We went on a southwest road trip, and we started uh, here in Palm Springs, California, made a loop that brought us all the way to Las Cruces, New Mexico, and then up to Santa Fe and the Flagstaff, and into Scottsdale, and then back home to Palm Springs. Initially, we're going to rent an RV and stay at RV parks. We've never done that before. We thought that sounded interesting. But we ultimately decided it would probably be easier and less expensive to rent a large vehicle and just stay at inexpensive motels. So we rented one of those large SUV vehicles. It was a, an expedition. Um, and we just packed everything in that thing. It seemed to be just fine. It was large enough for the, the three 65-pound dogs, the dog food, the dog beds, and, and the two human beings as well. So in terms of local, of location spots, of travel location spots, the cities were interesting for the dogs and for us, and the weather was good. We all enjoyed the break from the Palm Springs summer heat. We found uh, great walking and hiking areas everywhere. The dogs especially liked the hiking trails in Flagstaff, which did allow dogs. And by the way, not all hiking trails permit dogs, so that's something that's good to check into in advance. Now, in terms of the pet-friendly hotels, we called ahead, of course, to make sure and to make reservations and and to make sure that they were pet-friendly. And although we really never told anyone when we made the reservation that we're coming with three large dogs... But then again, nobody really asked how many dogs we had either. So to play it safe, we generally did not use the front entrance of the motel. And in the free standing rooms, we would request the furthest, most remote room possible. Now, if ever we had to leave the dogs unattended, which would always be for a minimum amount of time, we, we obsessively made sure the staff knew not to open the door or enter the room at any time. I mean, I'm telling you, we must have told each location ten times not to enter our room, not to, no cleaning service needed, no maid. We put up a sign on the front door saying something like, you know, you enter, you die. I mean, you hear about these horror stories, dogs getting out and lost, and, I mean, we were just paranoid. And also, when we made our transition in and out of the motel rooms, we would always put their leashes on while while they were in the room. Now, we enjoyed the rooms with kitchenettes because my husband and I liked to cook, and, and just to stay in in the evenings with our dogs was very nice. And it's nice if you have a choice to pick one of those sweet motels, you know, where you get two rooms with a 
with a couch that pulls out to a bed so all the all the dogs and all the people have plenty of places to relax and hang out. Very important to bring their own little chew toys or whatever they're used to playing with at home and their own dog beds, which we did. Now, as I said, we did rent this large SUV expedition. And, you know, they're sort of uh, higher up from the ground than a minivan would be. And it was it was a little hard for one of our dogs to get into the vehicle. And we had to lift her in in and out of the vehicle each time. And I remember we went to a hardware store in the Phoenix area to purchase a board to use as a ramp so it would be easier for her to get in and out of the car. But, of course, the the dogs completely avoided the ramp altogether because it was awkward for them. It became slippery, so we tossed that about an, about an hour after purchasing it. But you may want to think about that if you have a dog that's older or who has arthritis. Okay, other little negatives or problems we ran into. Well, the very first motel that we arrived at, our male dog, Paco, decided to mark his spot and urinated on the drapes. We weren't too happy about that, but it only happened once, and I'm not sure how we would have prevented that. I remember when we were in uh, Scottsdale, we didn't really calculate how hot it was going to get one day, and we were caught on the trails when it was just, it was too hot. I mean, we should have anticipated better. We should have started earlier, and of course, we want to make sure we had plenty of water, which we did. The last thing you want to do is get stuck in an area you're not familiar with, with your dog getting overheated or heat stroke. Oh, and we forgot to bring doggy bags because they seem to have been readily available on all the other dog-friendly trails we were on, and and we were reprimanded by one of the trail officers, um, and that wasn't good either. So, you know, overall, great trip, but a lot of work. It would not have been great for us if our plan was to do a lot of sightseeing or if we were really looking to get away and relax and unwind and sleep late. I mean, our dogs wanted to get up so early every morning and, and fat chance if we thought we could sleep in and on our vacation. So bottom line, if you're thinking of traveling with your pet, planning and preparation is really necessary. And, and there's websites that help you do this. You're going to have to consider whether your pet is even comfortable when traveling. Some animals, like some people, function better in familiar surroundings. A car-sick animal can make a trip miserable for everyone. Some ill or, or physically impaired dogs and cats cannot withstand the rigors of travel. You need to find out in advance if your pet is welcome at your final destination. If your pet must be left alone in a hotel room, place a do not disturb sign on the door and inform the the maid and the front desk. Uh, You have to be considerate, traveler. It's unfair to other hotel guests if your pet has separation anxiety and barks or howls when you're away. And you need to make sure your pet is uh, properly identified with, with collar, current rabies tags, name tag, microchip. To, to make your pet more comfortable while traveling, consider having their favorite food, toys, dishes. In addition, your pet may need to be treated appropriately based on your veterinarian's recommendations for heartworm or flea and ticks or gastrointestinal parasites, you know, depending where you go. You may need to consult your veterinarian about the use of sedatives for your pet during travel. So traveling with your pet can be stressful if you don't know where to turn in case of an emergency. Who would you call if your dog, cat, ferret got sick in the middle of the night? Where would you turn if he or she got loose or lost? 
Will you know what to do in the event your pet got hurt or started overheating? You should know how to minimize the chance of something horrible happening, like your dog getting loose or lost or ill or overheated or, or too anxious or carsick. Bottom line, prepare yourself, do your research, and plan ahead. There are numerous websites that talk about pet safety and travel tips, and they're really informative. Check them out before you take your pet with you on your next trip. You're listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for a serious talk about animals. Now in its eighth year, Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. Have you ever considered getting your dog or dog's DNA analyzed? What would you do with that information when you got it? As you know, home genetic testing is growing for use in humans, for those interested in their ancestry or for health reasons. But let's consider pets and dogs specifically. With us now is Ryan Boyko, CEO of Embark, and he is an expert in veterinary genetics. Welcome, Ryan. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, So glad to have you on. This is such an interesting time in both human and veterinary medicine. Uh, How popular has genetic testing of dogs become? Oh, it's been uh, growing very quickly, and uh, there's over 100,000 genetic tests of dogs every year now, uh, and it's growing 20% or so every year. And what's driving that? Well, there's uh, health considerations, and there's just plain old curiosity. Um, A lot of the tests are actually purchased by dog breeders who are trying to breed healthier dogs, making sure that they're not um, going to breed dogs that have, uh, you know, any of the 160 or so known genetic conditions where where we already know the genes that that cause those conditions. And then, you know, you have consumers who have mixed breed dogs and who are very interested to know the background story of their best friend. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about uh, your business specifically. How did that uh, get started and uh, what are you hoping to do? So Embark wants to use dog genetics to uh, make dogs healthier, live longer, live happier lives. And so we really want to, to take genetic testing and make it accessible to everyone and get all of the value that we can get out of it, both to drive research into the, the future that's going to help dogs for generations to come, as well as helping owners give their dog the best care possible. So we've built the first um, what we call research-grade 
chip for a dog genetic test. And so it, it looks more like the kinds of tests that human genetic companies use, you know, mm-hmm. companies like 23andMe or Ancestry.com that you might have heard of sure. um, that test humans. So we, we take a chip that's, that's like that. So it tests hundreds of thousands of places in your dog's genome. You know, we test for the, all, all of those health conditions that we can test for um, a bunch of, of traits. Some dogs have high altitude adaptation and things like that. Um, and, and even what the, the size of the dog will be as an adult. So if you have a puppy, that can be very useful information, as well as testing for what breeds are in the dog. You know, and, and that is not only interesting information, but you know, can be used for their health. But the really neat thing about testing all of those genetic markers is then we can use that information and information that owners report back to us about their dog's health and actually discover the genetics underlying new, more complex conditions, allergies, food intolerances and 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 kinds of food that dogs will will do best on it is uh, useful to sort of complete the loop and get the good clinical picture from your owners and dog guardians are veterinarians involved in this process or can an individual or family just order it and get the sample and uh, send it to you yes so we're actually piloting a program uh with several veterinary clinics to offer it in veterinary clinics um and, and ultimately, we want to be able to partner with veterinarians across the country so that owners can get the most value out of these tests because, you know, ultimately, your veterinarian has to help you understand yep. exactly what to do with this information. And we do, to all of our people who buy tests, we provide a veterinarian report that they can email or, or take to their veterinarian to actually discuss these results. But you can go online uh, to EmbarkVet.com and order it yourself. It's a simple cheek swab that gets mailed to you, and then you place in a return envelope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you'll get your results a few weeks later. So yeah, so owners can just order it themselves, do it themselves, and then when the results come, we do provide ways to help facilitate the discussion with your veterinarian. Yeah. I don't know how familiar you are with animals today. In general, we oppose dog breeding because we're concerned about the bad overpopulation and the uh, euthanasia of healthy dogs. But I suppose if there are going to be dog breeders, we'd like the dogs that they produce to be a lot healthier and not have so many of those horrible uh, conditions that shortens their lives and, and makes them miserable. So hopefully we'll see a silver lining there. Full disclosure on my end, I've owned two dogs, uh, uh, you know, in my adult life, and both of them are shelter rescue dogs. I've, you know, I, I have a affinity on my research before I started Embark for about almost a decade, traveled the world, collecting samples from village dogs around the world. Oh, interesting. To, to better understand dog health and uh, evolution and, and all of that. So I definitely have a you know, my, my heart is out there for mixed breed dogs and for the difficulties that, that shelters face and how, you know, how hard it is. But it's also true that there are people who are breeding dogs and who greatly prefer to have um, a purebred dog for a number of reasons. You know, one of which is actually because they know, they feel like they know what the dog will be like, will look like as an adult, how big that dog will be, uh, much more than they might know from a shelter dog. So not only can we hopefully help people 
breed dogs that will be healthier and ultimately you know some of those dogs will produce the mixed breed dogs that wind up in in shelters or purebred dogs that wind up in shelters i i think that this this as a whole will also help people ultimately know what a shelter dog how big that dog will be how that how that dog may be likely to be able to be trained or or those kinds of things you know we're doing all that kind of research so that hopefully in the end you actually have more people who feel comfortable adopting shelter dogs as well so do you see uh the use of genetic uh analysis coming into play in breed discrimination. Uh, We see uh, communities passing ordinances that ban specific breeds. These days, it's pit bulls or even pit bull mixes. Are they going to ask for the genetic composition of of a dog? Or are you going to see, are you going to be subpoenaed in legal cases? Where does this go? I don't think that we're going to be subpoenaed in in legal cases, partially because we don't have uh, a procedure, you know, with chain of evidence kinds of considerations where you know, you can use a test result in a court of law. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why a you know paternity test that you could buy at Walgreens for fifteen dollars costs a thousand dollars, right? If you're doing it for a, a legal case, because there's there's all these um, evidentiary concerns, you know, that would be required to be done. And uh, you know, and, and we haven't been approached by any municipalities or anything to ask about it either. But uh, you know, I, I will say right now, all these ordinances are discriminating on genetics and doing it extremely crudely. Yes. They're saying, well, if a dog looks kind of like this, then that dog is going to get banned. Never mind what the, the dog's actual behavior is. You know, never mind if the dog actually even does have any of that breed in them. So it's like three steps removed from, you know, what, what they want to do is they want to ban aggressive dogs. And they don't know why a dog is aggressive. So they say, well, these breeds are more aggressive than other breeds. Whether or not you want to believe that is a whole other case, but that's what they're, they're yeah, saying. Right. And then they're going to say, and these breeds look like this. So they're, you know, they're multiple steps removed. I actually think that there are a number of dogs who are being discriminated against who don't even have, necessarily have that breed in them, but just look that way. Dogs that look certain ways are less likely to be adopted from shelters right, too, or take right. longer to be adopted. Right, we've covered that. And and again, there's no immediate one-size-fits-all cure, but it may be helpful um, as a recourse for some owners who could take our genetic test and potentially, with their veterinarian or somebody, try to help show a court or a municipal authority know, like, you need to prove that this dog is a banned breed because the best evidence we have says it's not. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ryan uh, Boyko, this is just a, a fascinating field. And tell us the website where people can learn more about what's going on now. Um, EmbarkVet.com. That's E-M-B-A-R-K-V-E-T.com. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on Animals Today. All right. Great. Thank you for having me. So I have to tell you that before I had my talk with Ryan that you just heard, Lori and I really didn't have a particular interest in getting our dogs tested or a or knowing with certainty what their genetic composition was. Of course, we love them and we're very connected with them. But after speaking with Ryan and thinking it over a little bit, I realized I was indeed getting more and more interested in their genetic makeup. And then the idea of screening for potential genetic markers of disease, well, that seemed pretty logical also. So a few days later, I contacted uh, Ryan and And he agreed to 
test two of our dogs we thought we would send for submission, and and we uh, did so. And we now have the results. It takes a couple of weeks to get them back. They're obtained with a saliva swab. It's not too hard. And I have to tell you, knowing the genetic composition of the dogs has really changed the way I look at them a little bit, and for the better. This is surprising to me. I didn't think it would do anything, but I really think it's changed how I think and feel about my two dogs. So after the break, Lori and I are going to be talking about Cosmo and Skye, our two dogs. We have three, but we spared Susie the process. So Cosmo and Skye, and we are going to describe to you what they are like and then talk about what we received back from Embark. And then you can decide if you want to take this journey. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. See you soon. You're listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its eighth year, Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. When educator-turned-hip-hop artist D1 finished paying back his student loans, he celebrated by writing the song Sally Mae Back. Now he's teaming up with Sally Mae to help students get on track to paying off their loans. I'm passionate about helping people learn about financial literacy. The reality is that students are hungry for information. They want to understand the facts about paying back their loans and the best way to do it. Sally Mae's Rick Castellano adds, We're thrilled to work with D1 to help students get into the rhythm of repayment. He lays out the process and steps that are both direct and doable, teaching the right moves for building credit and successfully paying back student loans. Now through January 11th, Sally Mae customers with eligible student loans have the chance to win up to $10,000 to pay down their loans. For D1's complete list of tips and to enter the Pays to Repay contest, visit SallyMay.com. That's SallyMay.com. I'm Bob Pipo for the Consumer Radio Network. Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio. And I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. 
Welcome back to Animals Today. So as Peter mentioned before the break, we decided to get DNA analysis on two of our three dogs. You also can now appreciate how quickly this field of genetic testing is evolving and getting better. We think this is very fortunate because of the limitations in our ability to identify dog breeds visually. In fact, when researchers compared the identification of dogs by what they look like, what we call visual identification, to the identification of the same dogs determined by DNA analysis, 75% of the time, it didn't match. In other words, 75% of the time, people incorrectly identify dogs. So now let's talk about our two dogs that we tested, Cosmo and Skye. Cosmo is approximately five and a half, six years old. And when we first adopted Cosmo, he was labeled or identified as a pit bull mix, right? So people, shelter workers, our veterinarians, and even Peter and I thought he was predominantly pit bull and mixed with something else, but in a smaller percentage. And we all thought Cosmo was predominantly pit bull because he has the characteristics that most people identify as pit bull like this square head and this solid boxy body, right? So, Peter, what did we learn about Cosmo? Well, Lori, I have to say we got a lot of information back from the testing. And first is the breed analysis, and the second is the analysis for health and possible genetic defects that, that could lead to disease. So, regarding his breed, it was determined that Cosmo is 49.5% Staffordshire Terrier, pit bull, 18.2% uh, Labrador Retriever, 17% German Shepherd, 11.3% Chow Chow, and 4.0% Rottweiler. And who would have guessed that by looking at him? But on the whole, we thought he was uh, mostly Pitbull, and that's true. And we thought perhaps he had some Labrador in him. I know we talked about that at some time. He doesn't like to swim. But there's the analysis that was given. Now, the results go even further because they make a family tree and tell you what they believe the breed of ancestors was to yield the result in your dog. So in Cosmo, it was thought that the parents were mixed breeds, that of the grandparents, three were mixed and one was a pit bull. And of the eight great grandparents, four were pit bulls. One was a German shepherd, one was a chow chow, one was a Labrador retriever, and one was a lab mix. And I think that is just incredible to think about. They also provided information about where Cosmo's ancestors might have come from by looking at the Y chromosome and at mitochondrial DNA. The analysis also predicts Cosmo's full weight as 49 pounds, which is a little off because he's about 65 pounds and he's not fat at all. And another part of the analysis I thought was real interesting is that they look at genes that are predominant in wolves and see how much wolf gene your dog has, and they make a wolfiness score. What was Cosmo's wolfiness Co score? Cosmo was 1.4% wolfiness, which is medium in their scale. It doesn't appear at all as a wolf, by the way. So that was Cosmo's breed analysis. Very interesting. So regarding the disease analysis, they look at many specific genetic loci and look at common genetic diseases and a lot of uncommon genetic diseases to see whether the dogs are susceptible to get the disease or are carriers of other diseases. And it turns out Cosmo is clean on all their tests. That's so interesting, Peter. Okay, let's move on to Sky. Okay. Okay, so we thought 
Sky definitely has Pitbull in her. You know, she has the square face or head and huge from ear to ear, beautiful smile that these Pitbulls have. But her body type is not Pitbullish at all. I mean, she has a lean, muscular body with long, slender legs, not stocky like Pitbulls tend to be. And her coat and eyes are very unusual. Her coat is a mocha-colored, very short-haired, and really no hair on her undersurface. And her eyes are yellow. Yellow. In fact, many people have told us that they think Skye looks like a Weimaraner. And with the exception of her face and head shape. She has many features and characteristics of a Weimaraner. So Peter, what did they find? Okay. Also very interesting. There is almost 100% Pitbull in Sky. Wow. No no Weimaraner at all. Wow. The analysis shows 3.9% what they call super mutt. And in this case, the super mutt is thought to be a kind of mastiff, but it's really going back many, many, many generations. Her hypothetical family tree is all pit bulls, basically. Also, her predicted weight as an adult is 68 pounds. She needs to fill out a lot if she's going to get there. Maybe she will. She has 0% on the wolfiness index. She's zero wolfy for sure. Yes. But one of the genetic tests shows she is at risk to get a retinal disease called PRA, progressive retinal atrophy. So we'll have to watch her for that. She also is a carrier of a different disease, which she will not get because she's only a carrier, a lysosomal storage disease. And fortunately, she won't pass that off to anyone because she was fixed before she reproduced. But you could see why that would be good to know. As I said before, Lori, I think this is fascinating. Did you enjoy going through this process? I sure did. And does that surprise you? I mean, before doing this, I wouldn't have thought I, I would care. I was just doing it. You know, Peter, it doesn't change the way I look at them. It doesn't change the way I feel about them. I love them no matter what they are and what their makeup is. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting. The results, very interesting, actually. And it confirms what we know, which is that visually identifying dogs, just based upon a few of their features or their characteristics, can be inaccurate. Yeah, well, Lori, I'll tell you, you know, I'm very connected with these dogs, very bonded to both of them. And, uh, As strong as that relationship is, I think having this information made it even a little stronger. I can't explain why. It just is an emotional thing, but it's been quite strange. Just knowing this has made me love them just a little bit more, if that's possible. That's sweet. (laughs) So, Peter, would you recommend people doing this with their dogs? Yeah, I really would. I would take a look at this. Okay, well, it's been a fun and interesting experience for us, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Your Animals Today tip of the day has to do with kittens. If you find a litter of newborn or very young kittens, do not assume the mother has abandoned them. If they are not clearly in distress, their mother is probably hunting for food or in the process of moving them. She may even be hiding nearby until you've gone. You should leave the kittens alone for a couple hours and stay far enough away so the mother feels safe to return. If she doesn't return and you're absolutely convinced they are abandoned, contact your local cat rescue group and ask for advice about your particular situation. And that is your Animals Today tip of the day. 